The question we have before us this evening is how do we do evangelism today? And to answer that question, I'd like us to turn to the book of Colossians, and we will base our consideration in Colossians chapter 4 and verses 2 through to 6. Colossians 4 and verses 2 through to 6. Let me read it for us. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. As we think about how to do evangelism today, our first task is to make sure we understand what evangelism is. Evangelism is the task of telling a non-Christian the gospel. The evangel is a Greek word for gospel, and to evangelize someone is not to manipulate them, it is not to sell them a religious idea. Evangelism is not proselytism, that is to seek to convert someone by your own efforts and psychological techniques. Evangelism is the task of making the gospel, that is the evangel, clear to a non-Christian. And once we define it that way, we need to make sure we understand what the gospel is. Uh, we have already sung songs about the gospel, and we've read a, read a Bible passage about the gospel. A very helpful framework for the gospel is simply God, us, Jesus' response. God made us all to be in a relationship of loving obedience with him. We have all rebelled against him. God in his love uh, sent his son Jesus to save us and we are saved if we respond in repentance and faith. That is a simple summary of the gospel. Evangelism then is to make that message that is summarized simply in those ways but of course has many other profound connected elements to it, to make that message clear to a non-Christian. Uh, John Chapman, the Australian evangelist, uh, used to joke frequently that most evangelism fails in one of two of those elements. Most evangelism is either making the gospel clear, but there are no non-Christians present, or there are lots of non-Christians there, but there's no gospel. Neither of those things is evangelism. That doesn't mean that there isn't value 
in having um, social events for the community. That, of course, is a good thing to do. Uh, it is important that people get to know who Christians are and have opportunities to build relationships with them. But that is not evangelism as important as it may be. We could call it pre-evangelism, if you like, but it's not evangelism. Evangelism is when the gospel is made clear to non-Christians. And the end goal of evangelism is, to use a medical analogy, to perform a transplant operation. So the goal of an evangelist is to move someone out of the world into the body of the church. So evangelism is not merely finished when someone makes a decision. It is finished when someone joins the church. And I don't have the time to defend that um, part of our definition. But if you read through the book of Acts, you'll find over and over again that when someone becomes a Christian, they are joined to the church. So an evangelistic task is to make the gospel clear to a non-Christian in such a way that they would join the church. Now, why are we considering this topic, how to do evangelism today? Obviously, the question, how to do evangelism today, suggests there's something particularly important about us considering that uh, question these days or today or, or now. And one answer that we could give about that is that we live in a time when there are many people who don't believe in Jesus, even in predominantly Christian countries like America. One statistic has it that 80%, 80% of, Christian, of Americans call themselves Christians. Of course, those of us who are Christians would doubt whether that is an accurate, a fully accurate assessment. Nonetheless, there are, of course, many Christians in America. Um, but by most uh, data and statistics, it seems apparent that there are less people uh, believing in uh, Jesus uh, than perhaps there were uh, a, a few short years ago, or at least less people going to church than there were a few short years ago by data and statistics. So perhaps the answer why we're considering this question, how to do evangelism today, is that we need to answer that question, uh, answer, solve that problem, that, there are, that we need to reach out to more people and all the rest, and that would be a perfectly um, logical reason, but ultimately, that isn't the reason. Ultimately, the reason why we do evangelism is to give glory to Christ, to obey His commission. He said, go make disciples of all nations, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and so we do it. He is glorified in the conversion of people to his name. That's why we do it. We don't do it to sell more religious products to more people. We do it to glorify the name of Jesus in obedience to his commission. And that, therefore, leads me to my first answer to the question, how to do evangelism today, which is the same way it's always been done. Plus a change. Plus a lamam shows. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Yes, we are living in changing times, but the gospel has not changed. Yes, we live in cult times of cultural change, but people have fundamentally not changed. We're still made in the image of God. We're still sinners. We still need to be saved and 
brought into the kingdom of God, plus a, plus, plus a change, plus a la même shows. The more things change, the more things stay the same. To test my um, hypothesis that way, I went back and read a um, manual about how to do evangelism, or at least an answer to a question about how to do evangelism, from someone called Richard Baxter in his book, The Christian Directory. And basically, he said the same thing as I'm going to say tonight in the 17th century. Plus a change, plus a la même chose. And the more things change, the more things stay the same. The gospel has not changed. The power of God has not changed. People are still made in the image of God and sinners, and they still need to be saved. So the way we do evangelism today, one answer, and I think it is a very important part of the answer, is exactly the way it was done yesterday. Things have not changed fundamentally. On the other hand, though that is true, when you look at the Bible, you do find that the New Testament evangelists approached evangelism in some different ways, depending upon the context. For instance... If you read the book of Acts, you'll find that when the apostles went to Berea, the Bereans searched the scriptures to see whether these things are true. But then when you compare very soon afterwards Paul's technique in uh, Athens when he preached at Mars Hill and he declared to them in Acts chapter 17, uh, what you worship as an unknown God, having seen their idols around the city of Athens, I now um, will declare to you, they didn't search the scriptures to see whether the things that he was saying was true because they didn't believe the scriptures. They were pagans, um, highly educated pagans. And Paul quoted from pagan um, philosophers and all the rest to make a connection. Very different technique. Many of us, uh, the older generation uh, around us, grew up in a time when we fundamentally lived in a sort of Berean society. That is, we were surrounded by biblical inquirers. People had grown up with an assumption that the Bible was authoritative and if someone uh, like uh, Billy, Billy Graham said, the Bible says... People realized that he was quoting an authority, whether they believed it or not, and they wanted to search the Scriptures to see whether these things be true. It was a kind of Berean uh, situation, Berean inquirers. Uh, but that predominantly isn't the situation we live in today. Uh, I did a lot of uh, evangelism in a more Athenian kind of context, Athens kind of context, uh, not biblical inquirers, but uh, intelligent biblical illiterates. Uh, 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 on the East Coast at Yale, there were very intelligent people, but fairly ignorant of the Bible's main story. And uh, there was a lot of work that needed to be done apologetically to get someone even to the first base to consider the things of Christ. And that's a very different kind of situation. So you have the Bereans that you might say were biblical inquirers, and you have the Athenians that you might say were biblical illiterates. And in our context today, I would say that in Wheaton, we live in neither of those two situations predominantly. Uh, Wheaton, uh, I did some 
research on this again recently just to confirm the research I did on it when I first arrived. But Wheaton predominantly is made up of many Roman Catholics. It's something like 40, 45% Roman Catholic. Um, and so we live in a society where there are, there's a lot of religion. Um, and yet at the same time, increasingly society, as Chicago moves out, that is influenced and the world is influenced by the world around, the, the changing society in which we live, uh, that is becoming post biblical and so the reason why I've read from the book of Colossians apart from these verses being a wonderful manual at any time and in any context for how to do evangelism is because the church at Colossae was dealing with a post-biblical religiosity Uh, they were um, um, religious, there was a Jewish influence, but that was mixed with a, with a mystical influence, and there was this growing Gnosticism as it became, the, the famous heresy from the early church. It was increasingly post-biblical. Now, it's different from our day in, some, in many ways, but there is an analogy. And I think that we'll find what Paul teaches here in Colossians 4, 2-6, helpful at any day, but helpful particularly in our day. So there are here then six core principles for how to do evangelism today. Let me give you those six. First of all, prayer. Paul says, Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then he says again, Uh, in verse 3, at the same time pray also for us uh, that God may open a, to us a door for the word and he carries on there describing what they are to pray which we'll look at in just a moment. But the first principle is prayer. Uh, ultimately conversion is God's work. It is our job to tell. It is God's job to convert. I cannot convert anyone, nor can you. Only God can do that. It is a re supernatural regeneration. And therefore, we need to give ourselves to prayer. If we as a church and if we as Christians are to have a revitalization of evangelism, it will begin with the revitalization of prayer for non-Christians and prayer for the progress of the gospel. Uh, we need to give ourselves Urge, uh, with, with commitment and focus to pray. Uh, to pray that God will be glorified for the progress of the gospel. To pray that there will be opportunities. And many of us find evangelism a deeply frightening idea. Uh, it's quite difficult to think through actually how we're going to tell someone about Jesus. We find that unnerving. It makes us feel uncomfortable. We're not sure how we would go about doing it. But let me say this, we can at least begin by praying. And if nothing else this evening, perhaps you would go out from tonight with a renewed commitment to pray for your non-Christian friends, to list them by name, and to pray for them. I uh, was much struck recently in talking with um, quite an eminent and a senior minister who knew Billy Graham personally, and he told me when he asked Billy Graham what the secret of his 
evangelistic effectiveness was, he answered with one word, prayer. Pray. 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 We have a great task ahead of us as a church. We're surrounded predominantly by um, Roman Catholics. Many, of course, perhaps do know Jesus, but many who do not. And if we're going to reach Roman Catholics to the gospel and reach our neighbors to the gospel, we need to pray. Our prayer meetings need to be fuller, College Church. Our prayer needs to be more regular, College Church. We need to pray for non-Christians. We need to pray earnestly that God will move in power. Evangelism is a matter of great significance. Heaven and hell, eternity is at stake. God has given us a mission. It is His commission to the church to make disciples of all nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We need His power. We must pray for His power to make us bold and courageous. That was the prayer, of course, of the early church when they prayed that God would give them courage and the building shook and they went out with courage. So the first thing is prayer, always with evangelism, the first thing is prayer. Pray for an opportunity. You know, it's, it's amazing when I've been thinking through my own life and thought to myself, I haven't shared the gospel personally, individualist, in, in an individual way. Obviously, I'm preaching the gospel every week, but I haven't in, as, at an individual personal level shared the gospel perhaps for a little bit. If I pray for an opportunity, it's amazing how God is faithful to grant that opportunity. So would you begin by praying? So the first of these six core principles is, um, is prayer. The second one is preaching. This is verse uh, verses 3 and 4. At the same time, pray also for us. Uh, Paul here is talking about himself as an apostle, but the other workers, the other preachers of the gospel. But God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Not all of us are preachers. If you are being paid to do journalism, being paid to make money, to being paid to do a business, being paid to teach English. You're not being paid to evangelize. You're being paid to do that work. And so you must do that work. Not every moment of your day can be given up to evangelism. You need to be faithful to what God has asked you to do. But pray for an opportunity, and God will give you an opportunity but then pray for the preachers of the gospel, people like me and others who preach the gospel here and elsewhere, and invite people to hear the preaching of the gospel. Uh, that Richard Baxter and his uh, instructions about how to do evangelism many hundreds of years ago now, had uh, his first two principles were this. First of all, be clear about what the gospel is. We've done that. God asked Jesus' response. Second, Bring people to hear the preaching of the gospel. You can at least do that. They may say no, but you can at least invite someone to come on Easter Sunday morning. You can at least invite someone to come and hear the preaching of the gospel. 
and then pray that people like me, when we preach, when there will be an opening, an open door to that gospel, the gospel we preach to non-Christians, that we will make it clear. The great task of preaching is not to be rhetorically impressive. The great task of preaching is to be crystal clear so that when someone leaves the doors of Cottage Church, the one thing they cannot say is, I'm confused. Pray that above all, I and others who preach the gospel would preach it with clarity. So pray. Pray for the preachers of the gospel. That's the second principle, preaching, and invite people to hear gospel preaching. The third principle is in verse 5, the first part of it. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. This principle is life, how we live our lives. Now, that phrase, walk in wisdom, has a particular technical meaning in the book of Colossians. So Colossians 1, chapter 9, he has said uh, this, and so from uh, chapter 1, verse 9, he said this, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, or chapter 1, verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And then chapter 2, verse 3, talking about Jesus, in whom, that is Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and, uh, and knowledge. Or uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 23, uh, he's talking about um, the false ideas about how to be holy rather than the true ideas about how to be holy in Jesus. These indeed, these false ideas, have an appearance of wisdom. Of course, they're not truly wise. And then chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So when Paul says walk in wisdom, he has established what he means by that already. What he's saying is your life, Colossian Christians, the way you walk, that is your lifestyle, needs to be in wisdom, which means following the doctrine of Christ and living after the example of Christ. So that's the third principle. Our life needs to be following the doctrine of Christ and living after the example of Christ. There's a great need today for people to come across real Christians. And whether you are gifted verbally or not, whether you have the ability to spin a phrase or not, whether you're particularly relationally gifted or not, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, you all, we all have a calling and an opportunity to live for Christ. And it's amazing what a difference that can make. Imagine if this city was filled with people living with integrity after the example of Christ, walking in wisdom. What a difference that would make if we were truly salt and light in the world and our lifestyle was after the example of Christ. And so when we think about evangelism, what we must not be is hypocrites. Uh, We tend to think, when we think about evangelism, we tend to think about marketing a message, selling a product. But the world does not need more salespeople of Jesus. It needs more free samples of Jesus. We need to live for Jesus, to love Jesus, to love our neighbors, uh, to be filled with joy, 
And there are lots of little ways that we can do this. I think one little way is when you go out to a restaurant and, and eat outside and you've gone there perhaps after church on Sunday morning and everyone there who's selling at the restaurant knows that you've just been in church, make sure you tip generously. Wouldn't it be awful if the server knew you'd just come from church and you gave them a 5% tip or something? You know, it's like, who are these people? There's just one little way. But to make sure we live in wisdom, we walk in wisdom, we walk after the example of Christ. And of course, there are many other ways we could do that. And loving and serving our neighborhood. For many people, the only Bible they will read is you and your life. So walk in wisdom. Pray. Pray for the preachers of the gospel and invite people to hear the preaching of the gospel. Your lifestyle. Walk in wisdom. People are so confused today about what it means to be a Christian. They they look at YouTube, they go on social media, they think that people are angry about whatever cultural issue may be, and then they come across you, a real Christian, and you care for them. You hear that uh, your neighbor's wife is sick and you drop off uh, some flowers or a card. You care for them. They see something of Jesus in you. Walk in wisdom. So pray. Pray for those who preach the gospel and invite your friends to hear the preaching of the gospel. Walk in wisdom, your lifestyle. And then uh, the next principle, the fourth, second half of verse 5, is urgency, making the best use of the time. This is, my friends, urgent. Uh, More literally, we could, as it used to be translated, uh, redeem the time. I think Paul here is making a particular case uh, with a view to an eschatological vision that the time is short, that Jesus is coming back, and those who have been redeemed need to redeem the time. The time is short, you've got to make the most of it. And it's an important word for us, isn't it, these days when there's so many entertainment options. People say they're busy, but I think they're often busy watching Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever it is. There's so many entertainment options to surf down the internet on your phone. But the time is short. This is urgent. We must get after it. I've wondered to myself whether we need to bring back the famous D.L. Moody vow. Those of you, some of you may know this, but D.L. Moody decided that he would make a vow in his own life that he would never go to sleep without having told someone about Jesus. Very famously, one time he was about to go to sleep and he realized he hadn't told someone about Jesus. And he got out of bed, rushed downstairs. It was pouring with rain in Chicago. You know, Chicago weather, always good. And he went downstairs and there was someone sheltering under a a bus stop or something like that. And he noticed the person didn't have an umbrella. So he got an umbrella and he held the umbrella over the person's head and he said to him, Just like this umbrella is a shelter over your head, so Jesus can be your shelter over your head. (laughs) 
And he went, went back to bed after that. He, he, he at least told someone about Jesus. And you may think that's rather uh, sort of mechanistic. And perhaps it is. But it is at least one expression of the urgency. And I wonder whether in years to come, when people look back on this stage of the evangelical church's life in America, whether the number one thing they'll say is, Weren't they asleep? Where is the urgency? Heaven and hell, eternity at stake. We must be urgent. The time is short. Redeem the time. Make the best use of the time. Well, the fifth principle is uh, is this, uh, your conversation. So verse 6, the first half, puts it like this. Let your speech... Always be gracious, seasoned with salt. So Paul's already said that the preachers of the gospel will need to preach the word. Now all of us need our word or our words to be gracious always, seasoned with salt. That is, the way we speak, the way we talk, needs to have the gospel in it. And be seasoned with salt. What does he mean by salt? In the Old Test, in, in, in ancient times, salt was predominantly a, um, a preservative to stop meat going bad. And so when we are called to be salt as Christians, we are called to be moral preservatives to, to bring up moral and important ethical truths and live in the light of them. There needs to be salt in our conversation. Um, morality does matter. Seasoned with salt, but always gracious. Uh, Many times I think our conversations as Christians is filled with salt with a little bit of grace. It should be the other way around. It should be filled with grace. You're welcome. We want you here. I'm a sinner too. We're all broken around here. Like Martin Luther famously said when someone wanted to come and spend some time time with, with him where he was living in his home, he said, uh, you're welcome. We're all sinners here. You'll find no one but a sinner. We're all sinners here. Come along and join us. None of us is perfect. Join in. Filled with grace. But at the same time, once someone does become a Christian, we call each other to move forward with Jesus and become more like him, seasoned with salt. That's one way of putting together what Paul is saying here. Always gracious, seasoned with salt. So that's our conversation. And then the final principle here at the end of verse 6, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And that final principle is preparation. So we've had prayer, we've had preaching, We've had a life or lifestyle, walking in wisdom. We've had urgency. Uh, we've had our conversation filled with grace and seasoned with salt. And now we have uh, preparation that we would know how to answer each person. If you are to be effective evangelistically, you need to have the tools apologetically You need to know how to answer the kind of questions that will come up. And the the questions that come up are standard. 
plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. These things don't change. These questions have been answered since time immemorial, and there can be new variations of them, but, and there are new variations of them, but fundamentally the questions are the same, and so you can prepare yourself to know how to answer the, the question of suffering. Listen, if you're, if you're not able to answer that question of suffering, you're probably not going to want to go and tell someone about Jesus in case you get asked that question and you don't know how to answer it. Well, there are lots of books on the bookstore. Go and read up about how to answer the question of suffering. Or the exclusivity of Christ. How is it that there's only one way to God through Jesus? If you tell someone about Jesus, they're going to probably want to know the answer to that question. Do you know the answer? Get prepared. Or the authority of Scripture. Someone's probably going to want to say, well, is, is the Bible really historically reliable? There are answers to these questions. We don't need to be frightened by them. And perhaps we could have a whole series uh, on Sunday evening answering some of these questions. I can't go through them all now, or I could, but I suppose we wouldn't have any hot dogs if I did. But the, the point is that you need to have the tools. You need to be prepared. And if you're not prepared, uh, go and read up on it. You say, what do I need to read? Well, uh, there are so many books uh, written on these things these days, but Josh McDowell and his More Than a Carpenter was a classic that is always worth uh, reading up on. Um, and there have been many other books written answering these apologetic questions. And as I say, we could easily do a series on them if, if it was felt to be helpful at some point or other. But we as a church need answers to these questions. I, I've been somewhat bemused that people are frightened by these questions. We, we, the question of suffering, that's a sweet spot for Christians. We believe in the God with scars on his hands. We're not, we're not, we're not scared by the question of suffering. Our God suffered that we might come to saving faith in him and one day live in a world without suffering. He entered our pain. It's a sweet spot for Christians. The question of the exclusivity of Christ. We believe in a God who's sovereign. And he will redeem his people. And you say, well, what does the Bible say about it? The, question, the answer to that is the Bible says what you need to hear, you who can read it. The Bible's not written to answer theoretical questions to people who never read the Bible. You've got the Bible in front of you. What do you say about Jesus? And the, the, the authority of Scripture, the, the historical reliability of, for instance, Luke has been well established, and Luke points us to Jesus, and Jesus quotes from the Old Testament as authoritative, and he points towards the apostles who either authorized uh, the, the New Testament or authored the New Testament. And so if, you're, if you read Luke's gospel, let's start there, and if you come to faith in Jesus, then, then do as Jesus did with the Scriptures. And I've just given you a little bit on each of those. But be prepared. So those are our six principles as we live in Colossae, a a post-biblical world that is nonetheless quite religious because there are many Roman Catholics in this area. Here they are again. Pray. Preach and pray for those who preach and invite people to hear the preaching of the gospel. Walk in wisdom, your lifestyle. Urgent, be urgent. It's urgency. Make the best use of time. 
let your conversation be gracious, seasoned with salt, filled with grace, with little bits of salt, not the other way around, and then be prepared. Of course, the end goal for many, well, the, 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 uh, the method for many people is to get the person to look at the source text themselves, to look at what Luke or Mark or Matthew says about Jesus. And if you, if I feel like if, if I can get someone into the text and say, consider these things yourselves, let's look at it together. And then faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. I, um, uh, one man I got to know in a mission context, and we are in something of a mission situation these days in the West, though, as I say, I think it's Colossae around here, post-biblical but still quite religious context. Um, this man's name was Dato, or David in English, Dato. And uh, Dato uh, came to our um, fellowship gatherings and um, was interested in getting to know us because he wanted to learn English, I think, predominantly. Dato was quite good at basketball, um, but he injured his leg. He broke his leg, and his season was canceled, and uh, therefore he couldn't play basketball, and he was confined to his apartment room. I decided that once a week I would go and visit Dato. It was a long way to go. I had to take um, the, uh, the subway, and then there were various buses, and there was a long walk to his um, Soviet-style apartment, and uh, the lights often didn't work, and you had to walk up, and there was no elevator, walk up the steps. But I would, I would take the journey. It was probably an hour and a half journey or something like that, once a week to go and see Dato. First time I went there, I found that he had the Bible open. And he had questions about the Bible. And I said, good. I'll come back next week, underline all your questions, and we'll talk about them. And he did. And then the next week, and then the next week, and the next week. And in the end, in God's grace, he gave his life to Jesus. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Pray. Walk in wisdom. Invite people to hear the preaching of the gospel. Pray that people who preach the gospel will make it clear. And we do it all for the glory of God and in obedience to Jesus and his commission to his church. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we do pray. We pray that you would give us a renewed heart for evangelism. Thank you for the opportunity tonight to talk about how to do evangelism. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to make the gospel clear in our own lives as well. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunities, even this evening, even this week, to tell people about you, to invite them to Easter, to share the good news. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.